Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 10. Today's guest is Captain Stephanie Smith. Stephanie joined the Canadian Armed Forces as a nursing officer. She deployed twice to Afghanistan and also to the Philippines. Taking her career one step further, she decided to attend medical school to become a medical officer in the Canadian Forces. On top of all this, she also competed at the international level in triathlon. Let's get started. Welcome, Stephanie, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here, Kate. Let's get started by talking about where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in a small military town in Romocto, New Brunswick. My dad was a infantry officer and um, he met my mom actually there who was initially in the band and then um, was a transport officer at one point. And and uh, that's where I spent most of my formative years and also uh, went to Petawawa, Ontario as well. Did you know from a pretty early age that you also wanted to join the military? I think that given my both of my parents' background with the military, I always admired the military and thought it was interesting. I liked the, the structure and the organization. I liked the fitness component and all the competitions that you could be involved in. I didn't really think about it a lot until probably I entered university and uh, I was already in nursing school. I thought it would be nice to do travel around the world and do some more adventure, get involved with the opportunities in fitness that I witnessed a lot of people at the base gym that I would meet and they would talk about their cool experiences. So I was kind of intrigued about it then. And I had a lot of support from my parents early on to join. And they thought that it would probably appease my interest in doing third world nursing, as I called it in my high school yearbook. And uh, they just thought it fit my personality style well with the variety of opportunities you have. So I think getting their support made it easier to, to look into that as a profession. Mm -hmm. I'm always curious whether or not people had military backgrounds, because for me, I, my, none of my family was in the military. So it was, it was also new to me. So I always interested to hear about people who grew up in a military family and, and had those role models and, you know, like the moving around to the different bases with the postings. Did you play a lot of sports growing up? I did play a lot of sports. I think I played seven sports in high school. Uh, my parents used to say you need to be more focused and not do everything, but really enjoyed being involved in both team sports and individual sports. I've always really enjoyed um, competition, but also really enjoyed the camaraderie that comes with being on a sports team. And I've also really enjoyed challenging myself to achieve new tasks or take on a new skill. I remember 
playing basketball in grade 12 for the first time because they needed more athletes to play. And given I played soccer and rugby and a lot of other sports, I got recruited to learn basketball pretty late um, in my high school career. But uh, I think that I just really enjoyed the challenge of trying different things. And I was lucky to be at a where you had that option of playing multiple sports at high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sort of the same way. I I always like to try everything. I can't really imagine being one of those people who is just solely focused on on one sport. And that's all you do your entire life, because I'm just I just want to try everything. And there's not, not enough hours in the day for it sometimes. So did you join the reg force initially? Or was it the reserves? So I initially joined the reg force as a nursing officer. I was in my between my first and second years of nursing school and did basically in between the summers uh, and French training between nursing school and then uh, initially started working in Gagetown for my first job before being posted to Ottawa. And I worked there for five years, had the opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan from Ottawa a couple of times, then went to the Canadian Forces Health Services Training Centre, which was an amazing job where I had the opportunity to teach med techs, nursing officers, uh, physician assistants, and medical officers. And then I went to Petawawa at the field hospital, where I worked as the training officer, uh, clinical training officer, and then was the OC of treatment company. Then I went on French language training for a year before getting the opportunity to go back to medical school and residency where I've been in Calgary for the last five years. That sounds like a super busy career. So I want to get more into some of those things, but I'm just going to walk it back a little bit. When you initially went through basic training, was it sort of a big culture shock for you? It's a great question. My dad had me pretty terrified about basic training. He kind of had me thinking it was going to be like uh, the movies and that it would be really intimidating. But I actually found the camaraderie that we got on basic training to be really positive and very similar to some of the sports teams that I've been on. And it reminded me in a way of those challenging training camps you went on where you're completing and you're trying to make the team. Mm -hmm. And I found that was really helpful. Like at the time I was playing rugby at university at UMB, uh, the university of New Brunswick, and it had been pretty rigorous training that I had done throughout the year, lots of physically demanding training, but also, um, just the the team aspect and working together, taking on challenges, um, and then also going through challenges of, you know, going through losses, trying to adapt as a team. I found that really helped me with basic training. I think that the military at that time in 2001 was going through some transitions. And I I do think that there was, um, I I didn't find it to be as scary as what I was seeing, for example, in the movies, but um, I thought it was, challenging in the sense that it was a variety of new things that I was taking on and learning. And I would say I was probably kind of a type A perfectionist, wanted to do well. And I found what I look back on in basic training was that you weren't always going to do well at everything. And it was very humbling experience to know that, you know, you'd give it, be given a task to take on and uh, it would often be almost there'd be no way you would be successful. And it was to teach you that sometimes you have to fail at tasks and and figure out how to regroup and work with your team to learn how to kind of re uh, like reevaluate the situation and take it on differently. But um, I think I really liked the variety of it all. Like you're 
running to fitness classes and then you're going to drill and then you're going to weapons training and then you're doing small party tasks and taking on leadership skills. So I, I did like the variety of skills and I think it was easier maybe because I was 18 at the time and it was easy to listen to rules and regulation <laughs> that people told me, but, um, I think it maybe would have been harder if I had been older when I went through. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm assuming there was no problem with the fitness for you. That wasn't probably overly challenging. I actually don't like to say this, but I actually think I got less fit over basic training, but that's just because at the time, I mean, you're playing rugby at university, you're pretty fit at the time, but um, it was a different, I actually lost weight on basic training because we were so active. You're up and down the stairs. Uh, so I think in general, maybe my, um, I had better ability to do longer activities uh, versus like, I probably lost my really acute fitness, like sprinting and stuff like that. But uh, I think I just didn't have time to eat either. You know, you're rushing from one thing to the next and get your meal quickly. But uh, I think the fitness level that I was used to when I went there. And I, I actually was swimming at university that year. I forgot my first year of university, I did two, um, two sports at university. So I was probably the fittest I've ever been in my life. But um, I think I probably got stronger in the sense that I had never done a lot of, you know, weights and like lifting a rucksack and stuff like that. So that was something unique to me that I hadn't done before. And I think I probably got mentally stronger than I had been that that's for sure. So I did my BMQ in Borden because I was a reservist and I know I've seen pictures of people at the mega where they have a little fitness facility, but I know when we were in Borden, like, I don't think we even touched a weight. It was all just running and calisthenics. And I don't even know if we had sandbags for that. So then that was when they had the express test at the time. So the people who failed their express test during BMQ, since it was just this summer BMQ had to do remedial stuff in the evenings, but then it's like, well, it kind of wish that I could be doing that instead of sitting here sewing my name on my underwear but <laughs> that was how it worked then I guess you actually reminded me of something when I was about to start basic training the night before we all got together and met each other and thought well, let's go play soccer outside and I was a soccer player and we were playing and I crossed um, legs with another guy and I swore I shattered my tibia but I just had the hugest egg and it was like like on my um the front of my leg and I couldn't even get my boot done up all the way so I had to have it like nice and loose at the top and we had to do our express test that week and um they actually wouldn't let me do it because they said like your leg is so swollen you know I could barely run so they actually let me do the fitness test I think two weeks after I was really lucky but uh I do remember the express test now that you bring it up for sure yeah, that's lucky that you didn't get recourse. That would have, I guess, set you My back quite a bit. So as far as a nursing officer, you mentioned that you deployed to Afghanistan. But prior to that, as a nursing officer in the Canadian Forces, do you work at civilian hospitals to get that clinical experience or any sort of trauma experience in real life before you go over? Yeah. So initially, when I graduated, I worked as an immunization nurse in Gagetown, but I took a time job working in a medical and surgical floor to gain some clinical knowledge in the civilian environment before I was posted. And when I got to Ottawa at that time in 2005, there was a really good support for nursing officers to be working clinical full time because we were getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. So 
I was really lucky that prior to my first deployment for two full years, I worked in a variety of areas, a variety of areas. So I worked in um, surgical, orthopedic surgery, burns, and I worked um, then in trauma step-down units. And then I did my critical care course, which was to prepare to work in the emergency department and the ICU. So I did all of that, fortunately, before I deployed. So with that two years before my first deployment was very well supported by my unit to be clinical. And we would do a military, you know, one time a week where we get together and do leadership training, um, teaching medical topics. Uh, I was very well supported to be embedded, if you will, in the civilian hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I deployed as actually a generalist listening officer initially, meaning I worked more in medical surgical patients and also some emerge uh, emergency when I was uh, on that first deployment. Then I came back and worked full time in the intensive care unit. So I did adult intensive care mostly for about a year and a half and then some pediatric intensive care because I had seen on my first deployment how many children we treated almost a third of the patient population that we were treating. And so I got support from my chain of command to do that as well. And then deployed again in 2009 at that time as a critical care nursing officer working in the intensive care unit. Is it role three that, that you guys have over there? Correct. And then, so when you're working there, you're treating civilians and um, coalition troops? Correct. So we were treating uh, coalition forces. We were also treating the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police. We were treating local civilians that were injured as well. And that's where we got that population of pediatrics. But interestingly, we would keep them longer as well because there weren't pediatric facilities that we could send these patients to. So we would often have um, pediatric patients that would just stay with us for a longer period of time to help support before they left the facility. But we did have a definitely a variety of people. And within the coalition, we treated Canadian military, US military, British, uh, many uh, Australian, many other forces as well. Did you guys do any sort of outreach clinics where you're out in the communities or was it all where they come to you? So we actually did have a program where nurses were coming from the Afghan National Army Hospital to train in our intensive care unit. So it was on my second deployment that they were coming and we were training them in our facility. And to me, this seemed bizarre to train people in a different environment that they work normally. So I actually developed a, a mentorship program for the Afghan National Army Hospital. And I would go a couple of times a week throughout that deployment to the hospital, which was not really far from the base. It was only about 15 minutes off the base, but I would go there and uh, work with the interpreters to develop training aids that could help the nurses there to manage the critically injured patients. And they were um, either in the emergency department or the intensive care. And then also burns was the focus I was working on. And uh, I would say that's probably the, the closest to outreach other than we did have a clinic that once a week, Afghan um, others and their children could come into the Afghan National Army Hospital where we would do things like vaccinations and well women's checks. So that was another great opportunity to be a little bit more involved with the Afghan population. What was the most memorable part of the deployment for you? And then what was sort of the hardest aspects of it? A really great question. I'd say the most emotionally overwhelming was the first time I lost a 
a child in Afghanistan because the father of this child had actually, both of them had been injured by an improvised explosive device. And the father was in the trauma bed next door. And I mean, he was being resuscitated just like she was. And I think it was just really overwhelming to have this three-year-old little girl that didn't have anybody there to comfort her while she was not surviving related to these grave um, injuries that she had. And I just remember there was a couple of features. One, it was that emotional aspect of thinking, you know, this is so unfortunate for this child to be caught in the crossfire of the war. And I also thought it was just a very overwhelming for me at that time. That was on my first deployment where I had not had a lot of pediatric experience and nor did most of my colleagues. And it was overwhelming for all of us because we didn't have a lot of the equipment that we needed to work with children. And we didn't have a lot of the experience we needed to make sure we could do the best that we could for that child. And I think even though we were lucky that the doctor we were working with had experience working with children, that the whole team really struggles when you don't have that experience working in that environment. And I think it's just hard to process when you lose a child. It just really compute, especially when you're in war, when you're thinking you're going to be dealing with, you know, 18 and over soldiers. Um, so I'd say that was probably one of the hardest times was, was having that. And then I'd say some of the most beautiful things was just the sheer love that the Afghan, um, parents had for their children like I had just never witnessed something so beautiful like they would lie on the ground beside them in the intensive care unit and just be there to support them with anything they needed and not only that I found there was so much gratitude from the Afghan patients for the work we provided and I think it's hard like coming from a first world nation where you know, people are grateful, but sometimes it can be not communicated in the same way. And it can be challenging on healthcare providers to feel that gratification and it can be very stressful. But I found in Afghanistan, people were just so grateful for the littlest things and absolutely so kind. I even had one of our patients that his son um, had had a gunshot wounds to his arms and he had been treated at an Afghan hospital. And unfortunately, his arm became extremely infected and he was brought to us. Uh, he wasn't very responsive. And I remember the doctor having to tell him that he'd probably need to go to surgery um, to have his arm amputated. And I mean, the father was really pleading with him to save his arm. And, and the doctor was reiterating that, like, right now, we just want to save his life at this point, you know. And then the father said, you know amputate my arm and give it to him like just the most unbelievable things that people would do for their their families and that really transcended across working with the interpreters that they were just wanting to do everything they could to really help all the healthcare providers be familiar with the culture and educate us on anything that we could do to help and even learning the healthcare system in Afghanistan is such an important piece because I can't just utilize the skills I use in a first world country where we have all the resources we can imagine when you're in an environment where they have very limited resources, it's challenging to access those resources. And, and sometimes people don't even know where those resources are. So I think for me, like the beauty and the sadness in many ways came from that experiences I saw with, you know, working with the Afghan people, but also at the same time, feeling really sad for them getting kind of crossed, like stuck in the, in the middle of this unfortunate war. One thing, I mean, I guess, um, obviously it's terrible when, when anyone 
gets injured, but for, you know, a soldier who's sort of a, a willing participant in the back of their mind, they know what they've signed up for. They recognize that there's a chance that this might happen, but just people who are sort of completely innocent bystanders, especially children, like that would be, yeah, I can see how that would definitely be one of, one of the hardest parts to deal with. And I mean, another thing that, and I, I'm not sure that a lot of people sort of outside of the military understand is that if you're in a firefight and you wound someone and you don't kill them, you're now responsible for taking care of them. And that you could potentially have to treat a Taliban fighter if they're wounded worse than, say, a Canadian soldier. Well, then you've got to treat that Taliban soldier first and you've got to put away whatever biases you have about them and, and treat them, uh, which I think would, would be really difficult to do. That is a great point. I mean, we would have times when we were treating in the same emergency trauma base patients that uh, had been injured by you know, a Taliban soldier and then a Taliban soldier in another bed. And I mean, that was very challenging. And, and you're working in an environment where it's like a utilitarian approach where you have to try to take the resources you have and get them to spread as far as you can. And so we don't have an infinite amount of resources. So you have to be very strategic with how you're using those resources. And it can be very emotionally overwhelming when you have to make those challenging um, decisions about, you know, which patient is going to go to the operating room when both need to, and you only have one operating room team available. And um, even as simple as having blood products available and who accesses those. And I think that actually highlights another really beautiful thing that I had never seen before, which was in Afghanistan, was the walking blood bank, which is just an absolutely beautiful to see that siren go off over for people to come donate their blood. And then when you have a mass casualty uh, incident and you need more blood products, people are coming there to donate their blood and save a life. Like that moment it is extremely impressive that people are just so giving and kind. And, and they're already in an environment of stress themselves. And uh, just that beauty of seeing how you can save a life and how much commitment um, soldiers had to supporting us. I felt that I've never worked in an environment where I felt that the team was so close and that everybody supported the facility and the staff so much. Mm -hmm. And did you see any differences procedure-wise or how you guys approached certain injuries in the first deployment versus the second? I do think there was some differences given that the first deployment we were at the Canadian, Canadian led facility. It was the same facility, but it was led by Canadians the first time and by the U S the second time. And so there were different specialists that were available that I had not had the opportunity to work with on my first deployment. And so we did have access to potentially, you know, neurosurgeons that we didn't the first time or obstetricians, if, for example, if we had, uh, or pediatricians that were um, there on deployment working with us. So there was a lot of expertise that came in with the U.S. military staff that were working with us. So that was certainly different. And I also think it was interesting that a lot of the times, like from war, we learn how to adapt and, and develop the best practices in certain injuries that might not have been studied before. And so sometimes you're having people receive a surgery that's not been done before, but it's the best chance they have to salvage their limb. And uh, I think it was just extremely impressive working with all of the, the surgeons and the physicians that were there to often have to work outside of their 
comfort level or scope uh, because, you know, maybe in Canada, they're dealing with more, you know, traumatic injuries that are coming from motor vehicle accidents, let's say. And then now, you know, you're in an environment where you're having improvised explosive devices and you're having blast injuries that not only are impacting, you know, bone injuries, but also blast injuries of the lung and head injuries that are significant. So you're seeing so many different injuries than you potentially would have in majority of places we we lived and trained in Canada. But um, I think one thing I really loved is that when we did work with the multiple different nations, you always get the benefit of different experiences and training that can help the team at looking at things differently and being able to think outside the box. I, in a way, it's almost being like MacGyvering your way to get things done because you're working often with less staff, with a smaller facility, with less equipment, and um, and sometimes in a way not having the training in that specific area. But I think people really work together to find the strength in the team to get the job done. I took a, a course a couple of semesters ago through RMC and it was technology, society and warfare. So for my final paper, I chose the technology of medical training and TCCC. So reading some of the earlier articles about how that originated from the soft community and, and the army rangers, and there would only be a certain number of people trained. And, you know, even back in the day, they're like, oh, no tourniquets to change into what it is now. And having, you know, the more people trained on it, not just the medic, the better the chance of survival. So is it true? It was something, it was a really high percentage rate that if you could get the casualty to that role three facility, that their chance of survival was actually very high if you could, if you could get them there alive. Mm-hmm. That is correct. That I mean, it's been a long time since I've been to Afghanistan. It's been uh, 12 years, but at that time, we certainly knew that if you could actually get to the role three facility, your chances of survival, I think they were in the realm of like 99%. Mm-hmm. It was very good chances. And I mean, really, we owe that to the medics that were packaging up these um, injured casualties and, and soldiers, and they could get them there. It was unbelievable what they could do on the ground, you know, in a dangerous environment and a firefight. Like I have so much respect for people that had to do that job and, and what that would have been like. And even being able to think medically is challenging, you know, in the moment when I'm in a safe hospital and there's nothing else happening around me, like the idea of having to do that under fire or when a patient is you know, looking like near death. I mean, it's unbelievable. And they come in and they'd actually look pretty good. And then we'd unwrap them and we'd think, wow, how in the world, you know, did they look that good when they brought them in? But we would, in a way, we call it like the golden hour. Mm-hmm. That hour often got, gets extended in, in war, but there were amazing innovations that were made by the med techs on the ground that recognized like, this is how I'm going to MacGyver and get and use the, the tools that I have. And there was so much um, great um, literature that was coming out early on in Afghanistan about the use of quick clot, the granulation rock that could help with cauterizing um, if there were any areas where you couldn't put a tourniquet. Um, and also the application of tourniquets, you know, training people to be able to do that um, independently. Then also the use of... Um, giving fluids to to patients and how you could balance trying to resuscitate patients with fluids, but also balancing that like permissive hypotension where we would want to not give our patients too much fluid because unfortunately, you know, med techs can't carry around blood products with them in their backpack. So we had to try to have that balance. And I, I think it was such 
an amazing learning curve for all of us, but I, I think it probably was the most pressure on the, the med techs to really have to navigate, like, how much can I do in the field, but I just literally need to get them to the role three hospital where they can have most of the time surgical intervention to be able to, um, and or blood products to be able to resuscitate the patient. And uh, I, I would say that you were correct, though, that once you got there, you, you did pretty well. So that was the goal. Mm-hmm. So I guess that, you know, really speaks to what you guys were able to do once once they got to you, even with, you know, it not being a hospital facility like you would see in North America with with all of those resources available. So once you came back from Afghanistan, then what was your career path like? So when I came back from my second deployment, um, I went to the Canadian Forces Health Services Training Center in Borden, and I initially was working with nursing officers, running the uh, basic nursing officer course, and the clinical phase training program, which is similar to consolidated period of time for our nursing officers after you would graduate, you'd be a fully functioning nurse, but we would do this training to get exposure in the variety of areas the military would need you to have competence to deploy, uh, similarly to what I had done when I first graduated for those first couple of years. And uh, did that for a couple of years. And then I went up to work in Banting Company. And then I went to treatment, um, sorry, not treatment company. I went to top of company in uh, treating uh, or teaching QL5 uh, med techs. And that's like our advanced paramedic training. Okay. And that I really loved teaching that. That was probably the most fun that I've had in the, in the military. And just because... I think for me, having the opportunity to work with the med techs on deployment and witnessing what their job is, you know, day to day in a clinic versus like on a deployment in war was just so diverse. Like the expectation to be able to adapt in those environments is just, it's overwhelming, I would say at the least, but uh, I just really loved being involved in the training and um, helping, you know, med techs be able to take on more skills themselves, but also to learn from them about how they manage and adapt in the environments that they've been in. So I found it a really good opportunity for me for learning. And uh, I also really am passionate about teaching and making things as fun as they can be and got really involved in simulation training at that time and would run training for, well, that's how I had the opportunities with the physician assistants and medical officers. So I would work um, with their training exercises to bring on simulation training. So I did that as well with the nurses and the, the medical technicians, but I would um, get the opportunity to do a lot of collaborative training with a multitude of different professions working together, which is more realistic to practice. And um, I thought it was just really, it's fun. If, if anything, like you're having the opportunity to simulate real life disasters, whether it's man-made or whether it's um, a disaster, like humanitarian disaster, but you have an opportunity to work with the team and do it in a safe environment where people can, you know, we can make mistakes, we can learn together. And um, I think it was probably the most gratifying uh, career that uh, opportunity I had was working there. I'm sure it made a difference for all the students too, like to have an instructor who's so enthusiastic about that. I know we've all probably been on some courses that you can tell that your instructor might not want to be there. So I'm sure they probably benefited a lot from from having you instructing that. 
And I think it's so important as well to have that, that realistic training that induces that bit of stress, but at the same time, it's a controlled environment, but it's, it, it helps you prepare for what you're going to see in the future or what you might encounter. Definitely. So throughout all this, what, at what point did you get involved in a triathlon or was this something that was sort of happening throughout your career? I started actually with running uh, competitively. So I had, as I had mentioned, I was doing rugby at university and uh, I had done a local running race. And so one of the, the CISM or the, um, I think it's the Council International Sports Militaire, uh, they, so the, the national team for this military, the coach had seen me locally in, in Gagetown or Ramocto and said, you should, you know, come and train with us and was fortunately able to, I had to make sure I break 20 minutes for my 5k. And so I went from 22 minutes and 30 seconds to 19 minutes and 30 seconds working with him over six months. So in 2004, I started running with the SISM team and had the opportunity to race in Tunisia, Africa and uh, Belgium as well, which was really fun. It was my first time really getting out of the country initially when we went to training camps in Barbados and the Olympic training center in the States. So that was really exciting. And uh, then I actually transitioned to triathlon team in 2008. And that was probably related to having the swimming background. Uh, I had been swimming since I was a kid and uh, they were recruiting and looking for triathletes. So I, I transitioned then and had the chance to compete in Estonia uh, then my, my first military world games, which was in Brazil, which was amazing. And uh, I had the best race of my life. I ended up finishing first for the Canadian team and uh, being really sick after I swallowed way too much water and I <laughs> too much salt and I felt pretty sick after, but it was the best race I've had. So that was nice. And then I've had the chance to race afterwards um, in Switzerland as well. So I've been very fortunate to have the opportunities to race with the military around the world and uh, go to many training camps um, in the United States and in Barbados and um, just an amazing program. So many volunteers, the coaches and the trainers are always volunteering their time and it's uh, a lot of work. I mean, at one point I was probably training 20 to 22 hours a week uh, for the three different disciplines and uh, at the time I was actually working at the training center. So pretty busy, but I've had um, a lot of support I found in my career. As long as I could get my work done, then they would be supportive for me to, to go race once a year. And um, I found it was really good to manage and balance stress. And I actually think it helped me on my deployments as well, although I didn't get to swim in Afghanistan, but I, I ran a ton when I was in Afghanistan. I ran you know, probably 40 to 50 kilometers a week in the heat. Um, I would try to run at five or six in the morning before work, but I was teaching spin classes at the gym. If I had some time off shift or, you know, leading core classes, but for me, fitness has always been a great way to relieve stress and a good outlet. So I think for me, that has been really helpful and, and really made me love the military. There's a variety of things you get in the military, but I think that opportunity to race around the world and meet other military members um, has been extremely fun. And I know people who have done the various SISM meets and the, the places that they go in the world, it's, it's really neat. I do have a friend, I think she it was probably the same one in, in um, Brazil. She was a volleyball player. 
uh, it would be so neat seeing everyone from all of the other countries. And I, I'm not sure how it works for, for a lot of them, but don't some of them have basically professional athletes that are just in a military uniform sort of for publicity or occasionally doing something, but for the most part, they're like a full-time athlete. Correct. Uh, I was definitely schooled by many Olympians, even in our race in Brazil, um, we were in the second pack, uh, but the first pack was the Olympians and we were only a couple of minutes behind coming out of the water. And then I, I say this often, it's like my claim to fame that they did their 40 K in 59 minutes. And my pack of eight did ours a minute, sorry, an hour and a minute. So I was like, we're only two minutes behind the Olympians, but it's a big difference when you're in a pack <laughs> there, you're getting a lot of the work done by the rest of the team members. But, um, but then they destroy us on the run. I mean, some of them could run sub 35 minute, 10 K off a bike, just phenomenal, phenomenal athletes. And, um, I do often joke that it would be neat to have competition where you could have like the two tiers, like the professional athlete Olympians that just put on a uniform once a year and then the rest of us that you know, do work in the military. But uh, I'm not going to complain when I'm getting opportunities to, to race for sure. And it's, it's very humbling. It uh, reminds you how much dedication and commitment goes into being um, a phenomenal athlete. And it's just been really amazing to have those opportunities. And I'd, I'd rather race an Olympic day and then, you know, kick my butt than not have the opportunity at all. Mm -hmm. And it probably maybe even brings out some better times in you when you're pushing yourself racing against someone that much better. What did your training look like for that? I mean, were you training like before and after work? So when my training was probably the hardest, I was at Sharon Donnelly, a previous Olympian that was actually in the Canadian military. Um, and she was training me and she was great because uh, she would adapt my training if I needed it. But pretty much every day I was up at 530 to train minimally from six to seven, I would be swimming on most days or either like leading a spin class for to keep up the cycling in the winter. And, uh, if it was not, if it was the summer, I'd probably do weights on those morning days. And then the evenings always gave me more time for like a big chunk of training. So I would normally do at least an hour and a half to two hours after work every day. And so, um, those would normally be the runs and the bike and then the weekend always was a big chunk of time. So depending on where I was in my training cycle, you know, going for a three or four hour bike ride would be the norm going for, you know, a two hour run the next day would just be the expectation. And then also do long swim, we'd have more pool time on the weekend. So probably doing, you know, a two hour swim on the weekend as well. And then during the summer, you're also racing a lot, um, to, to manage, um, you know, getting in the competitions before you do the big races with the military. But, um, I also, you know, did PT with my unit and I count those as workout time as well. We would do circuits and stuff. And sometimes the unit would let me lead uh, fitness training so I could adapt it to what I thought was really good for me too. And they knew that. Um, but, uh, it's nice too with the, when I taught courses, I would often say, you know, I teach a spin class. Do we want to do that for PT and, or for physical training? And it was really nice, like camaraderie and bringing everybody together. Um, I do not expect everybody to enjoy running like I do. So <laughs> we often do group runs because then people, you know, really wouldn't have liked me, but, uh, I found that it was definitely demanding at times with training. And there were times when I had to take it a little bit easier and do less. And I think back to that now and, I, I train very, um, 
and frequently compared to that, I mean, I'm not training two or three times a day now. Now I'm, you know, I do one workout a day and I'm quite happy with that. And I, I do plan to get back into it more when I go back with the military, but going through medical training has been, you know, very demanding hours, sometimes or 80 or hundred hours a week at the hospital on a busy rotation. So you don't have a ton of time to train, but um, I think I look back at it now and I wish I had been more appreciative of how fit I was because uh, you're always just trying to be fatter, uh, sorry, faster <laughs> and fitter and uh, yeah, not fatter. Um, and uh, I definitely found that I look back now and I think, my goodness, you know, I could run 41 minutes for a 10 K off the bike. Like I should have been happy with that, you know, or I could run 18 minutes for a 5 K and I never appreciated the time. And so I often say to people, cause I do a lot of coaching or more so before medicine, but I've been coaching probably about 10 years. And I say to people, if there's one thing I can tell you is be grateful for where you're at and don't overtrain because it is, it's so easy to do too much and then just burn yourself and dig yourself into a hole. Um, I actually kind of burnt out a bit with triathlon after racing for many years and decided to transition and decided to do the Petawawa Ironman, which mm-hmm. is not triathlon Ironman, but, uh, um, kilometer rucksack march run and then uh, pick up the canoe and portage for 4k and then 8k canoe and then you put the rucksack back on and do 6k so it's um 50k and as funny as it might sound that you know I was burnt out from triathlon so I did something different but I think it was just mixing up the training and I was used to training high volume. So my body could transition pretty easily to like that um, long distance event. And I found that was great. And I had tons of support from my unit at the field hospital, which was my last real job before I went like on French training and then the uh, medical school. And I loved that unit. Like nothing could be more exciting than working with the unit that deploys to the disasters and the wars around uh, the world. And uh, they were so supportive. I remember uh, the Sergeant major brought uh, the medics out to like cheer me on coming in. And uh, I got really lucky the time I did that race. And I ended up finishing first for the women on that day. And I honestly believe it was like near that last 6k I had so many people there cheering me on and I wanted to quit. (laughs) I had the worst blisters and it hurt everywhere, but uh, it just speaks again to that camaraderie and that teamwork and that mental resilience that you get working in the military. So I think that kind of was the culmination of things before I went uh, back to school. Mm -hmm. And it's such a different, obviously it's still sort of cardio based, but it's so different running with nothing to then carrying, you know, a canoe or a rucksack. And if, you know, a lot of people have a hard time with that, if they're not worked up to it, for sure. I find it so interesting how the army has that and the mountain man and the Navy has, we do a Navy run on the East and West coast. And then we do the Navy bike ride, but there's nothing that's overly hardcore, which is kind of like, Oh, I kind of, it'd be fun to go compete in one of those army competitions. That's just like a grueling suffer fest. That's a good word for it. I actually would love to have done mountain man. And I'm so close. Like Edmonton's only five, uh, sorry, three hours away. And I've been here for five years and it just, I always thought I would do it in residency and then COVID happened. So that's like shut down things. But during med school, it was just so busy. Like I just couldn't get the time 
to train. And I, I didn't want to go in and, and get injured. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, you can do lots of things. And if you're fine with just, you know, competing, which I think is amazing. I just know myself, like, I don't want to go in something unless I'm at the best peak I can be at, because I know I'm going to push myself to, you know, complete failure and I don't want to get injured. So, and I actually did have hip surgery after my uh, second, I did Ironman another time. And I had about two weeks before that Ironman, I was racing, not race. I was racing, but not like really racing in uh, Ireland. I was on vacation. I signed up for a half marathon. I was using it as a training run. Mm -hmm. And uh, my boyfriend and I at the time ran it. And it was um, essentially where there had been like war-torn grounds, like all these really hardcore people had um, gone through like these boulders and stones and we're running on this. And it's, it was very hard on the body. And I remember afterwards being really sore. And I got back and I, I couldn't really lift my leg up. I couldn't drive my knee up. And so I asked my physio friend to take a look and she's like, you've torn your labrum, which is essentially the cartilage in between my hip joint. And I was like, well, yeah, but like, that's fine. Right. I'm still going to race Ironman. And I was so ready to destroy my record. That was my, my plan. And it was probably the most humbling thing I've done because I was two days out and I went to see the physio. And like I said, she told me this injury. I was just mentally so prepared to do this race. And then the morning of, I woke up and I just, I just knew my body would not be able to keep it together for this race, but I didn't want to pull out. And, um, I actually started racing. I'm 10 K into it. And all the people I've been training with that year are passing me. And I'm like, we've done a, a quarter, a half, a three quarter Ironman. And I'm like, this is not good. Like everybody's starting to pass me. I can't run. I just like, can't drive that knee up. I already had blisters. I had to actually, <laughs> to actually fix my blisters at 10 K in. And I thought, I just want to quit. I, I'm not going to win this race. I am. It's not, it's not worth it. You're saying all these things in your head. And, um, essentially, you know, at a friend go by that just said, you know, you got this Stephanie, you know, and just like that positive thought. And I thought to myself, Sharon Donnelly, my previous coach for triathlon said to me, there's one thing she regretted in all of her racing around the world and, you know, Olympic trials and in the Olympics and many races. And she said, I one time pulled out of a race and I quit. And I still regret making that decision. She's like, whether you finish and you're having your best day, or you're having your worst day, just finish the race. So I said, I made the decision right then. I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to keep going. And uh, it ended up being very tumultuous weather. Um, I was the last person to get on the water before they canceled people going on the water. So those people had to actually do a rucksack longer. They had to do 8K (laughs) instead of the new, and then it's 6K. I would have been devastated. My feet needed the break. And the water was so bad that I couldn't get in. I was stuck. I was like going past the entry point. And so I ended up going about two kilometers past and then going backwards around the island and getting into the entrance, which was great. I mean, I was ready in my mind that wherever I ended up, I'm picking up that canoe and I'm carrying it back. I'm not, not finishing this race at this point. And I get out. And so at this, you know, I've done the 32 kilometers of the rucksack, done the 4k portage, done now 10k of the canoe. And uh, I get in and there's two of my friends there, one that works with me and one that goes to kind of CrossFit type classes with me. And they're like, you got this Stephanie, like to stay tough. And you know, it's what you need to hear in those moments and uh, ended up finishing the race. I mean, was really still lucky. Like I finished fourth female overall and um, my team won. So we had um, the, the other girl that won was actually a girl I trained with all summer. And um, so we had 
you know, the top two women and top two men combined to get this team award, which was so exciting for the field hospital. And I thought the lesson learned there is that you're not always going to have the best race of your life. There's going to be days where it's really hard and you've just got to suffer through it. And, you know, just finishing is sometimes the best thing you can do and your team can still be just as successful. So I think I was pretty lucky that I had this positive mindset that day. Cause I'm telling you, I, I really wanted to quit. <laughs> yeah. I was expecting you to say that you came in last or something and you're like, Oh, I came in fourth. but yeah, I mean, I think that is such a big thing too. You see people becoming popular online now with the David Goggins and the Cameron Haynes and all those people who do these crazy ultra marathons and the mental toughness is sort of getting out there a bit more now. There is something to be said about just putting your head down and just grinding it out. And I think obviously like people in the military are are a little more used to, to doing that than the general population. Yeah. Then sort of transitioning back to your career, how did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor? So I actually wanted to be a doctor all of my life. I used to watch Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman okay. on TV with my mom. And my mom's a nurse and my oma's a nurse, my aunt's a nurse. Like it seemed like the right fit um, initially to go into nursing because my mom said, well, at least then you're getting clinical experience. See if it's what you want to do. You have a, an undergraduate degree that you can use and, and not just if I went in sciences and I, you know, didn't find the right calling for me, then I might, it might not be the best fit. So I was really glad that I, I did that. And I really wanted to do medicine right away, but I owed time back to the military. And then I was just having so much fun as a nurse. And I was having such a great time um, with all the deployments and all the teaching opportunities and the simulation training I was doing. Once I got to the field hospital, we were doing international exercises, you know, with the UK. It was just so fun. And I had the opportunity to deploy with the disaster assistance response team to Philippines after the typhoon in 2013. And I had so much opportunity as a nurse there and I loved it, but I remember working with the physicians and thinking, oh, I just really want to do this. I really want to do this independent practice where I can um, work in an environment where maybe it's just me. And I just wanted to learn a lot more. And I was really in awe of the physicians that I was working with on that domain. And, uh, you know, I thought back to the many physicians I had worked with in Afghanistan, many of which have been very supportive of me pursuing medicine and going back. And I think it just took, it takes a long time to really truly develop that confidence that especially when you're in the healthcare environment and you see how much you need to know as a physician. And I thought, I wonder if I'm smart enough. I would often say to myself, and um, I knew I was hardworking enough, but I wondered if I could retain that much knowledge in my brain. And I've since learned, you know, going into medicine, there are those people that can just retain everything they learn. And one thing I've noticed I'm really good at is I'm really good at remembering who I can call when I don't know. <laughs> so I've developed, you know, good connections with people that have the expertise in an area that I might not have. And I just think medicine is, there's so much knowledge we're expected to know and it grows and it grows. And I think it's humbling to remember that you can't possibly know everything, but um, if you have a really good team of people or know who you can reach out to, or if you're willing to say to patients sometimes like, I'm not exactly sure. I need to research this a bit more and get back to you. But I think I saw early on that the independence of, you know, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman was really appealing to me. 
And I really love the team aspect of medicine and, um, and nursing and healthcare in general. But I, I do like taking on that leadership role. I like being the team leader. I like challenging myself to be the one that has to make those tough decisions. And I think I just also really love the, the scope of skills and whatnot that you can do in medicine. So I think there's days that I really do miss nursing. And I, often people I work with say, Stephanie, you aren't the nurse and the doctor now. Like yeah. I try to do both things. But uh, I loved the relationships I really built with my patients um, as a nursing officer. And it's beautiful. You're the one that's with, you're the eyes and the ears really of the doctors, you know, you're with them 24 seven, the patients. And I really love that. And it's something I'm trying to foster in, in medicine where I still can maintain those, those beautiful relationships, but also balance that and use my team effectively so that the nursing staff are obviously getting to do their job and, and I'm doing mine. But um, I think I definitely don't have any regrets about going back. And I think it probably going back a bit older was good because I have the the knowledge and skills from nursing that really helped me have confidence I needed to get the job done in medicine, I guess. How much schooling is it from that point where you had your nursing degree then to become a doctor? So I had to do a three-year program or I had the opportunity to do a three-year program at the University of Calgary. There's two schools in Canada that do that, McMaster as well. And it just is that we don't take any break at all. So there's no summer uh, break and you start a bit earlier um, in the summer, the first year. And uh, then after that's done, you have to do a two-year residency in family medicine if you're in the military. So if you're outside the military, you can do any surgery rotations or... um, you know, emergency, obstetrics, all of that. But in the military, we do family medicine. And then you do that and you work for, you know, at least a few years before you could decide you want to apply for other specialties if you wanted to do, let's say, orthopedic or general surgery, radiology, psychiatry, internal medicine, physiatry, um, anesthesiology. And, um, but there's also the options of going back and doing like an extra year of emergency, which I'm really um, interested in and uh, we'll see what happens. But I think that it makes sense for the military to train doctors to be family doctors. We need family doctors and uh, then gain that experience. And if you want to go back and do another specialty on top of it, you can do that later on. Mm-hmm. I'd be so interested in diving medicine. I mean, not that I would be able to go to school for that long to become a doctor. Definitely. Yeah. Like you can do on top, like do master's programs for dive medicine, for air medicine, and um, you can do infectious disease, like they're in public health. There, There's so many amazing opportunities that are available to just expand your knowledge. I think that was the balance though, getting stretched so thin and having to have expertise in a variety of areas. So What advice would you give women wanting to join the Canadian forces and specifically those interested in the medical field? So firstly, I would say when you go to the recruiting center, you know, you can be going to find information about different professions, occupations, but make sure you're not pushed into doing something that you don't want to do. If it's not something you're, you're sure you're passionate about, then I would say probably just stick with your guns and go with what you want to do. And when it comes to the medical um, field, I think the opportunities are unbelievable in the military. So I would say that whether you want to come just for four or five years or you want to make a career of it, you don't have to make that decision initially, but you will get amazing experiences. You will have opportunities to get unique training, unique experiences, 
probably get some deployments and uh, you'll develop unique skills that you probably wouldn't have otherwise, even just going through basic training. So I think that if you're intimidated about joining the military because you think it's going to be too physically challenging or you're concerned about, you know, having to move around a lot, I think those are fair concerns that people might have. But I would recommend, you know, talking to someone about the reality of what things are, because it's not like the movies make it seem to be. But um, I think it's more realistic to think that the, the military has adapted over time. And we we really want to recruit and get more females. I know the prime minister has said that before, and we want more female representation in the military. And I do think the opportunities are just so amazing. And you can take those experiences with you when you go off to other careers in the future, if you decide to do it for a shorter period of time. But I have no complaints. I mean, having a nursing degree, a master's degree and a medical degree paid for by the Canadian Armed Forces and have had numerous courses I've been uh, trained to be able to be an instructor on. I just think that is such a gift that we have and it's um, a unique opportunity. So I say that if you think you're interested, do a little bit of background work to explore what the reality of it is. Talk to someone that's in the military, you know, reach out to the recruiting centers. They can connect you with people. And uh, I think, you know, take on the challenge. It's probably worth it. It's a a really amazing uh, career. Awesome. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Stephanie. No problem. I, I feel lucky that I'm, uh, I've been gone for a few years, you know, back in school and I'm excited to put the uniform back on uh, in a couple of weeks when I go to my first job working as a new doc in uh, Ormocto back to where I started. So I'm pretty excited about that and I uh, feel really fortunate about being done school and actually had graduation last week. Wow. That's amazing. Congratulations. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.